Hi there, welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast where we speak to world-class individuals, artists, entrepreneurs, actors, creatives and today, um, how do I describe this? Today, I'd say this man is a communicator. This man is a world-class communicator. You are about to learn lessons for communicating that you will be using for the rest of your life. Here's what you can expect from today's unbelievable High Performance Podcast. And so I just say, look, I want you to know that I know you're scared. And I know you're worried about coming out. And I know you're worried about getting hurt when you're coming out. Here's what it's going to look like when you come out so that you don't get hurt. Oh, such a great episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. But before we give you this episode, I'm going to, I'm afraid, ask you for something. I need your help. Um, so it's the British Podcast Awards coming very soon. I am delighted that we're up for Best Sports Podcast. However, we are also nominated in the Listener's Choice Award. And this is the one that we would love to win because it's it's voted for by you. It's a public vote from fans of this podcast. And I suppose it just means even more because it will be people whose lives have been touched by all the work that we've done. So if you love the High Performance Podcast, if it's changed your outlook, if it's helped you in any way, please, 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 can you just spend two minutes going to BritishPodcastAwards.com. That's BritishPodcastAwards.com forward slash vote. You can find the link in the description for this podcast. Uh, click on there, click High Performance, give us your vote, and we would love to win it. Um, thank you so much in advance. Let me also remind you, if you haven't yet signed up, we have our own private members club. It's called the High Performance Circle. It's completely free to enter and the content on there is unbelievable and we've just dropped a load of fresh content for this month and um, we hear from a man called Hamish de Britton Gordon about having the right mindset in conflict zones we hear from Ben Saunders who's a polar explorer who talks about the fact that self-belief is like a muscle we have a podcast episode oh, I always hate saying this because I feel bad on the other podcasts but I think it may be one of the greatest podcasts we've ever recorded with a man called Rick Lewis please 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 just listen to that you have to go to the High Performance Circle and sign up, but then you'll get that podcast and it's unbelievable. We also have a stunning keynote as well from former rower Kath Bishop, who asks us to just question the way that we look at winning. So all you need to do if you want to sign up for the High Performance Circle for free is just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, click join, you'll get an invite, and then you're in the circle and you get all the content and you get it absolutely free. As well as that, you can also pre-order our book, which is out in December. Um, it can be pre-ordered right now, though. Just again, go to the description in the link for this podcast and you can find it there or you can order it from our website. Right, enough from me. This week's High Performance Podcast comes straight after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
big, big news for the founding partner of the High Performance Podcast this week because Lotus are the official shirt sponsor of Norwich City for the new season in the Premier League, which is super exciting. I mean, obviously for me, being a Norwich City fan, it's particularly uh, special, but I just can't wait to see those two iconic Norfolk brands alongside each other. So there you go. You'll be seeing Lotus on the shirts of Norwich City this season. Let's hope for some high performance performances from the Canaries. And uh, as our founding partner, we can't thank Lotus Cars enough. And if you'd like to get more information about them and their amazing cars, just go to Lotus Cars across social media. Today's guest knows full well that words, how and when we use them, can quite literally save lives. After all, he was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. For over 20 years, he learned how negotiation transformed his life, how active listening is key, how assumption can blind us, and why how we say something matters just as much as what we say. But how can his lessons in negotiation and communication enhance your life? It's time to find out. Please welcome to the High Performance Podcast, the author of the new book, Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. Chris, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I'm happy to be here. Good man. Right. This is how we always start this podcast. What is high performance? Wow. You know, I mean, it, it it's almost all the time. It's any, any time that you know, we're concerned, which is, you know, sort of our default mode. You know, we think high pressure negotiations happen only rarely, you know, but uh, there's a saying, your biggest problem is your biggest problem. So people have a tendency in their lives to get uh, concerned, agitated, bent out of shape over even the smallest things. So, you know, high performance is performing under pressure and actually enjoying it. And how do you reprogram your brain to do that? So did you find that you had to reprogram your brain to enjoy negotiating with bank robbers and international terrorists? Yeah, you know, because I didn't realize that I'd kind of been trained wrong. You know, there's very little, uh, there's very few good examples of actually really good negotiation and, and really good negotiation. You know, it's never marketed as great negotiation. Like I think Oprah Winfrey's might be the best negotiator on earth. Explain. Nobody thinks of her as a negotiator. You know, nobody does. So I, I've since I started talking about Oprah, I've run across a couple of people sort of behind the scenes in her world. So Oprah has taken some highly volatile people to the woodshed over their misbehavior. And nobody knows about it because of the way she handles it. She's, she's got a tremendous demeanor. She's soft-spoken. She's low-key. You know, what we refer to as the late-night FM DJ voice. I mean, that's Oprah's default voice. And so I've had some very explicit conversations where basically she said it's my way or the highway to high-profile celebrities that are not used to being spoken to like this to start with. How about a visible conversation? Her interview with Lance Armstrong. By the way, I, I, I met Lance Armstrong on an airplane. I consider him a friend. I like the guy a lot. She said, look, I'm going to put you on camera. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, bluntly asking you if you cheated. And you're going to answer yes or no. He knew that going in, and he still went on camera. That's a negotiation. If you think about where she started and where she is, by anybody's standards, forget about where she started as a black female from, I think, Chicago. No advantages, no privilege. She wasn't born with any privileges. Take that away. 
and think about her net worth compared to the other billionaires on earth. She didn't start as a child of a real estate developer in New York who was given a million dollars as spending money to get started. Look where she started. And a lot of people say, yeah, well, of course, you're not going to argue with Oprah because it's Oprah. Now, <laughs> these high-profile celebrities, they don't care who they're arguing with if they get bent out of shape. They're happy to go on Twitter and Instagram and all sorts of social media and throw shade at one another. And you don't see it happening with her. To me, that's great collaboration, focus on long-term relationships, and it's a definition of building prosperity for you and everybody you're involved with. So one of our big questions that we have is that negotiation often gets a bad press. It's often got a negative connotation, and yet you describe it as a beautiful process. Would you explain your perspective to come to that conclusion? Well, you know, whatever happens, it causes you to make the shift. Like you wonder if maybe, is there a better way to do this? You know, do I have to win all the time? You know, is it a zero-sum game? Do I have to beat the other side? And it starts to sneak up on you in little ways because I'm, I'm a natural-born assertive. I'm, I'm very assertive. Direct and honest is how uh, I would describe me. And other people would describe me when I'm in my natural assertive mode that dealing with me is like getting hit in the face with a brick. <laughs> and the real problem with that style of negotiator, because it's what everybody expects from, on the other side of the table. When we prep people, you know, the Black Swan Group, we've been training people for, what is that, 13 years. We always ask people, who are you prepared for in a negotiation? Everybody's preparing for the attacking negotiator, even though that's not everybody. But everybody's expecting that because that's the demeanor. And it locks people's brains up. The attacking negotiator hits a couple of home runs early. And then people get tired of being attacked. And so then they run into fewer and fewer deals. And then suddenly nobody will talk to them. And they don't understand because they have this memory of all these great victories where I had them over a barrel and there was nothing they could do. And they don't realize that the last time they talked about an, a victory like that was seven, eight years ago. And they're living in that memory. And so those memories are so satisfying, you don't realize how many deals you drive from the table. It's interesting. So people listening to this, Chris... And we have lots of business leaders and they will understand negotiation. But we also have a huge number of teachers that listen to this, parents that listen to this. Do we all negotiate every single day of our lives? Is this a lesson for everyone that you're talking about here? Anytime the words I want or I need are coming across your lips, you're in a negotiation. How many times a day I want a cup of coffee? I need you to go to bed early. I want you to do your homework. I want to go to this restaurant. How many times a day do those words cross your lips? That's how often you're in a negotiation. People think it's a negotiation only if money's involved. Yeah. The commodity that's always involved in a negotiation is time. You know, how are you going to get the money? How are you going to pay somebody? Even the transfer of money requires time, requires implementation. When I was doing kidnapping negotiations, we'd bargain like crazy over the, the ransom amount just to wear them down. You know, I knew that the real issue was I could agree to a million dollars right now. Try and get it out of me. Mm. The devil is in the details. You know, I'm like, well, you know, do you want it $5 bills? Do you want it $100 bills? 
Do you want it in a suitcase? Do you want it in a backpack? How are we going to deliver it to you? How do we make sure that you're sure that no, I mean, like the details, the devil's in the details. The money amount to me was just entertainment. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to kill you over the details. That's time. And that's where business negotiations break down because they think they have deals when they've agreed on a price. You know, a famous activist investor in the United States, Carl Icahn. Carl Icahn realized that as soon as price was settled, the other side was going to drop their guard. And when he felt like it, that's where he wiped people out over the details. The devil's in the details. I'm, I'm fascinated in how you learn these skills that you now teach to others and that you've used in such high stakes negotiations yourself. Would you, like, would you explain a little bit about the start of your journey? Yeah, you know, and uh, there's a great book out there called The Talent Code and um, uh, Daniel Coyle, I think, and he, he contends that everything is learned. Um, and there's all kinds of other books out there similar. Talent is overrated. Most people that achieve, they learn to work hard and to learn. I grew up in an environment where my father expected me to figure stuff out. He was a blue-collar guy from the Midwestern United States. He had to figure stuff out himself to be successful, ran his own business, and figured his kids needed to figure stuff out themselves too. My son still gets the biggest kick out of this. My father decided he wanted a new garage, uh, the old garage in the backyard. Yeah, I was 11. My older sister was 13. He handed each of us crowbars and said, go tear down the garage. <laughs> You know, he had, to, he had to pay for our room and board. He wanted to get a return on his investment. You know, he put us to work. But we like, we had to go out and figure out how to tear this garage down. You know, that was my life growing up. If, if there's a task, figure it out, which is a high emphasis on learning. Now, I, I was not a natural born negotiator in any way. Nobody's a natural born anything. I was, I was a member on a SWAT team. I was FBI SWAT. I wanted to be in SWAT. And I decided to make the switch to hostage negotiations because I had a recurring knee injury. And I've, you know, I've had my knee <laughs> rebuilt a couple of times. And we had hostage negotiators. I like crisis response. So I thought, you know, I could do that. How hard could that be? I talk to people all the time. I could talk to a terrorist. You know, we, I, I like to joke that the unofficial motto of the Voss family is how hard could it be? <laughs> Which is, a, you know, it's, it's like the, the, in the U.S. we have a saying, uh, a redneck's famous last words are, hey, watch this. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. Look, Chris, you said at the beginning, the devil is in the detail. And I really want people listening to this podcast to get detail from us about how they, from the minute they turn off this podcast and go and buy your book, Never Split the Difference, how from that moment they can be better negotiators. What is the best way to do that? Should we role play? Do you want to explain to us the skills that are involved in negotiating? How do you normally work this kind of thing? Well, let the other side go first. And that's really hard to do because everybody wants to have their say. One of the things about negotiation is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. How do you do that? You got to let them talk. So let's say you have a promotional event of mine. You want to do a promotional event with me. Yeah. You, you, got, you got a whole game plan laid out. And um, you're a typical negotiator. You're worried about your budget. You're worried about the details. You want to be in control. How would you start that? How would you normally start that? If you wanted to contact me about it, make the deal. I would call you and I'd say, hey, Chris, uh, my name's Jake. I'm based in the UK. I hear you've got a new book out, Never Split the Difference. I, I run a events agency in the UK and I would love the opportunity to share your story with people um, across the pond. How do you fancy that? Sounds like you had something specific in mind. <laughs> 
yeah, uh, yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah, I want to do a book tour around the UK. Um, and I reckon we can sell out theatres. Um, and I've got some great contacts in the TV industry. So I reckon I can get you on to um, BBC Breakfast and Good Morning Britain. They're the two big early morning programmes over here. Um, what do you think? All right, so I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to talk about what just happened. Before you contacted me, whether you actually wrote it down or you're aware of it, you have an entire vision in your head. Vision drives decision. There are a lot of times in negotiations where people are actually just contacting someone to get a competing bid or they're looking to do due diligence. Like, let's say you want to do this whole book tour thing, but you want to do it with an equivalent author or somebody else with a business book out there. And you're dry running with me to see what I might be looking for, which means the vision in your head does not include me. So my first saying sounds like you've got something in mind. I didn't say, what do you have in mind? Because there's a, any question puts people on guard to some degree. Now, what do you have in mind is a good, what we would refer to as a calibrated question. A lot of other people would call either an open-ended question or a reporter's question. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Reporter's interrogative. I ask that question if I want you to stop and think. It triggers what Danny Kahneman would refer to as in-depth, slow thinking. If in that moment I want you to stop and think and take a step back, I'll ask you what question. If instead I want to trigger a straight stream of consciousness, sounds like you got something in mind, hits your brain in a completely different way. And it's much more likely to open up a direct downstream, unvarnished stream of consciousness of your thoughts. Now, there's no guarantee of success of any approach. I just want to use the stuff that's most likely to get the thinking out of you without exhausting you. I want you to give me a downstream that you're comfortable with, which simultaneously makes it me feel to you like I'm easy to work with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were kind of praising me when you said to me, Seems like you've got uh, something. In, I I almost felt I had to tell you something because I almost felt like you'd or you were already impressed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all this additional emotional intelligence, relationship building benefits that kind of come with this approach entirely. So can I flip it slightly because I'm intrigued by this approach. I, I want to go back to the angle Jake was talking about, but in relation to your days as a FBI negotiator. What would you do if somebody refused to play ball with you? So if somebody just refused to engage? Well, you know, that's part of the assessment of the process. Now, we'd probably start what we consider to be one-way dialogue. Because you refusing to answer back doesn't mean you're not listening. So if you're refusing to answer me back, what does that mean? What that means is you're scared. Your guard is up. You don't know if you could trust me. The future looks extremely uncertain to you. You're frozen. So that informs me as to now I'm going to start taking educated guesses. You know, each one of these things sounds like is a label. Looks like, feels like. Those are, those are educated guesses. You know, we, we have a scientific term for them. We call them swags. That's a scientific wild-ass guess. I'm going to take a scientific wild-ass guess on what you're feeling. So I'm negotiating. We got 
twenty seventh floor of a high rise in a, in a, in Harlem in New York in uh, in the nineties. We had brought the circus to town. We got the SWAT team. We got up twenty seven floors in this high rise. I mean, the circus has come to town. We've made so much noise getting up there. We figure there's no way that these guys are not long gone because we brought the circus. We got elephants. We got trapeze artists. I mean, we make that much noise bringing an entire SWAT team and everybody to bear on this apartment. So I think we're talking to an empty apartment. I got two baby negotiators with me. They're still in training. I'm like, cool. This is rite of passage. Everybody talks to an empty apartment at some point in time. In point of fact, the fugitives are inside and they're heavily armed. And so I just say, look, I want you to know that I know you're scared. And I know you're worried about coming out. And I know you're worried about getting hurt when you're coming out. Here's what it's going to look like when you come out so that you don't get hurt. Because I said vision drives decision, right? I got to start putting a vision in their head of them coming out safely. So we're, we're talking to this empty apartment. I'm thoroughly convinced it's empty for six hours. Six hours of this over and over and over. And six hours in, a sniper on an adjacent building says, I just saw a curtain move inside. And we all go like, holy cow, they really are in there. And so then I go, look, we just saw the curtains move on the inside. One of you just looked out the window. I've been telling you for six hours, we're not going away. And that you're going to come out safe. And about five minutes later, without saying a word, the door opens and a pair of hands comes out exactly as I've described. I said, you have to come out with your hands first so that we can see that they're empty so we don't hurt you. And you've got to move really slow because we've got to keep you safe. We brought all three out, all three of them out one at a time, exactly like that. They never said a word. When we got outside, the first one to come out was a female. And I went to talk to her. I'm like, I've been talking for six hours. Why don't you say something? And she says, well, we were hoping you would go away. And I said, well, if you were hoping we, were go we would go away, why'd you come out? She said, well, you said you'd never go away. So we finally believed you and decided to come out. What? Unbelievable. You know what I think so? In I mean, for a start, I just, I don't know why, but I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that I'm hearing exactly what bad people in the States have heard at the sort of peak of their of their careers, if you know what I mean. Like, you're the voice that these huge fugitives in the, in the United States have been listening to, and we're now on the other end of it. But what, what sort of gets me is, um, so I used to work in Formula One as a, as a broadcaster, wow. and um, in motor racing, they call Formula One the Piranha Club because everyone is out to get everyone else and eat each other up. And as you walk up and down the pit lane or the paddock, everyone's saying, oh, he robbed me and he, she robbed me and I stole from him. And that's kind of the way that world likes to operate. But what you've just explained is you can have a successful negotiation by not disarming someone, not being aggressive towards someone, by putting them totally at ease. And I've always kind of had the thought that to be a good negotiator, you need to get them on the back foot, knock them on their knees and slap them on the back of the head and leave them feeling like they've got nowhere to go. But you've just described the total opposite. It's successful. Yeah, yeah, because long term, it's much more profitable. I mean, they're, they're quiet negotiators, get farther, accumulate more money, are happier. They're, you know, there's the occasional poster child, you know, and, and the current poster child for negotiations in the United States is Donald Trump. 
I was I was in New York in the, in the 80s and the 90s when he was there. He was making it as a real estate developer. We have a number of mutual friends. Um, I He hosted, graciously hosted, a fundraiser for a charity that I was the head of in his apartment at Trump Tower. It was a very gracious and wonderful thing for him to do. We mutual acquaintance set it up. He hasn't had, he started out in New York. He, he redid Grand Central Station, spectacular success. He did the Woman skate, Skating Rink that the city hadn't been able to fix for years. He finally got sick of walking by it, seeing, seeing how ugly it was on, on his own, paid, paid to fix it. He just got disgusted at the city's ineptitude. Went and built. Trump, the original Trump Tower, phenomenal, phenomenal. Then built another building, but then kind of stopped putting up buildings in New York. And then he went to Atlantic City and had, had a spectacular success there. But then, you know, sort of ran out of gas in Atlantic City, you know, and, and an aggressive negotiator wears out their counterparts. Now, the monuments to their success remain. But the monuments are built farther and farther apart in time. And since the monuments of their success remain, people forget how long ago they were built. And the victories are fewer and fewer in between. And people just get tired of getting beat up. And they just, they just stop coming to the table. They don't want, if coming to the table means arguing, they don't come to the table. So would you argue then, Chris, that negative emotions such as negotiating through fear or intimidation or telling people about your power or status and things like that are short-term fixes but actually over a long term they're uh, they're destructive thousand percent and one of the things that's almost misleading about that is you know academic studies on negotiation what you're talking about is referred to in academic terms as strategic umbrage you know do i get mad to get the deal. And there's an academic study, uh, there's probably several out there that say that strategic umbrage works. Anytime you find out about any study, take a look about how they gathered it and whether or not you like how they did the data. You know, you, you don't got to be a college graduate to look at it and say, this doesn't look right to me. So the academic studies on strategic umbrage are, were simulations that were run with students. I ran simulations with students myself. What happens when you run a simulation with a student? They sit down and they think two things. I got to get this done in 45 minutes because I want to go drink it with my buddies tonight. or I want to go get coffee or I got to study something else. But they tend to allocate 45 minutes. They also feel the only way they fail is if they don't get a deal. And since it's a simulation, this is a one and done and it's not an ongoing relationship. So they're within 10 minutes. You know, they've been there 40 minutes, they've been there 45, and finally one of them decides to get angry with the other one. And the other one's like, all right, the hell with it. And they, and they cut the deal. And that data will show that the anger got the deal. But they're never going to deal with each other again, and it was a fake simulation, and they don't have to pay for that anger. And there isn't anybody in our life we don't have repeat relationships with. You go out and buy a car, and you slaughter the dealer over the car price. If the car's a lemon, you go back to that dealer and they're not going to want to fix it. If the car is good and you go back to that dealer for routine maintenance, they're going to remember that you killed them before and they're not cutting you a break on anything. 
There's no such thing as a one-off. I mean, anybody listening to this, they're going to say, yeah, well, I can remember this one time I had a one-off. All right. Yeah. Compared to all the other times. So why do we get caught up in this idea then, apart from the studies and the sort of, unlike the false dichotomy that they, that they promote, why do we get convinced that this idea that negative emotions are more valuable than positive emotions and Chris, and what can you teach us uh, to challenge those perceptions? Well, it's, it's what gets held up to us all the time. Like before my book came out and people just knew that I taught negotiation. I was a hostage negotiator. I taught negotiations in business school. And I would go to you know business events or any sort of professional gathering. And they say, hey, it's Chris Foss. He was a hostage negotiator. He teaches business negotiation in Georgetown. And every time somebody would speak up and go like, you know what? Let me tell you about this deal I negotiated. You know, I had them over a barrel. You know, they had nowhere to go. I had all the leverage. Now, if you're in a gathering, the only person that speaks up is the person that hammered somebody. You see over and over, wow, I guess if I want to have a deal that I brag about, you know, show off to the boys, prove to my brother-in-law how smart I am, I got to go out and I got to beat somebody down. And then I'm going to brag about it for the rest of the time. So our, I'm afraid our examples in real life and in movies and the TV are always of somebody smashing somebody else. That Those are the models that are held up to us. So let's go back to the role play then. Um, you've already said to me, it seems like I have a plan. What's the next thing that you would normally do with someone? First of all, uh, I'm going to listen to your game plan. So if I get an idea of, have you ever done this before? Or do you have any sort of a sense for the environment? You know, what are the challenges? I'm, I'm probably going to say, you know, how, how'd this go when you tried it in the past? What happened? What sort of obstacles you run into? I'm really more interested in whether or not you have any idea of what you're getting into and how collaborative you're going to be. Because even if you cut me a great deal financially, if dealing with you is painful, if it sucks the life out of me, it's going to be blood money and I'm not going to want it. Even if it's lucrative, it's just going to be too painful. I want deals that I want to repeat. So now I'm starting to gather an idea of what a relationship's going to look like. Can I ask you a question at all and have you answer, or do you just want to dismiss me? You know, how you do anything is how you do everything. That's going to be the way you are to deal with the entire duration of the relationship. And I want to know what I'm getting into with you as a business partner, because I'm into long-term prosperous relationships, positive sum games. And if you are not, then even if you throw a lot of money on the table, it's still going to be painful. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So are there other tricks that you would employ apart from disarming me with seems like, looks like, feels like? What are the other tricks to conversation? You mentioned Oprah at the beginning. What does Oprah Winfrey do in her interviews that make her so successful. I remember a long, long time ago, one of my psychology teachers explained to me the, the power of mirroring, just repeating what someone yeah. says 
I don't know whether is that is that part of the negotiator's handbook. It can be, you know, you get you gave me two different questions. What does Oprah do and what's part of the negotiator's handbook? So I'm gonna go to what, what Oprah does first. Does that make me a bad negotiator right there? <laughs> no, it means I listen. It seems it seems like you think it does. <laughs> oh, there's a mislabel. <laughs> no, not at all. No? Getting people to say no is a good thing. First of all, don't be scared of no. But here's here's the real key to what Oprah does. Oh, sorry, I can't let you I can't let you move on from why no is a good? I can't let you move on because we're all taught no is a bad thing. Yeah. Why is no a good thing? The um the biggest turning point in every negotiator's life is coming to grips with with what no really is. That that may have been the single biggest turning point for me, because like everybody else, getting to yes, you want to hear yes. Yes is the end, of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I mean, you know, we're almost hypnotized to believe that, yes, when you hear yes, the heavens part, the angels sing, the birds chirp. But uh, so the turning point for me was I read a book called Start With No, Jim Camp, 2002. I'm passing a book in an airport bookstore, and I, I, I literally do a double take. I'm like, what? Start with no? You're supposed to get yes. How do you start with no? And Camp was like... In order to free people up, just tell them it's okay to say no. He called it the right to veto. And his negotiation style was to start out with by saying, like, look, you can say no to me at any time. I just want you to know I'm not here to try to back you into the corner. Yes. Anytime you want, say no. I'll get up and move away. I'll be gone. And his approach was that preserves the other person's autonomy. And he literally says in his book, people will die for their autonomy. And I'm and I'm reading it. I'm going like, no kidding. That's why we have hostage negotiators in the first place. We had SWAT teams. We didn't have negotiators. We just surround their house and tell them to come out or get killed, which was taking away their autonomy. And law enforcement globally were killing people who would rather die than give up their autonomy. They were caught. You know, they come out guns blazing. But after a while, we'd be like. All right, so we know this dude came out shooting at us, but he was just some poor slob that had too much to drink and got upset and mad at his wife, and she called him names and ran out. Did this guy deserve to die because he drank too much and he was unhappy? Yeah, you know, it was a legally justified killing. But morally, is there a better way to approach this? And we thought, what if we pay somebody to maybe ask him nice? <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of how it was all born. But is there something about saying no as well? Like I, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a recent negotiation I had with my 11-year-old son, Chris, and he was asking me about something that I felt uncomfortable with. And when I said no to him when uh, his request, it gave me a, a sense of safety, and then I felt like we could negotiate from there on. We could find a, a middle ground. And that's the misinterpretation of data. And I'll, and I'll characterize it for you in a, in, in a minute. A, a misinterpretation of data is that playing basketball makes you tall. Because just look at all the people that are playing that tall. <laughs> so a lot of people that hear that story and they're going to say, well, kids know how to negotiate with parents. No. What you did was a human nature response. Because exactly as you said, having said no, you felt that you'd sort of protected your own interests. You're no longer under attack. You're more open to hearing the possibilities 
feeling safe and protected. Through the course of the interactions, your child has figured out that after you say no, there's a pretty good chance you're actually going to listen to what they want. And so if they're not put off by the fact that you said no, if they're patient, then that's when the negotiation is really probably going to start. And that's human on human. It's not parent and child. It's human on human. In this um, in this brilliant therapy session, as well as educational conversation that we're having, <laughs> um, I tell you the problem I have with my kids, and I'd love to neg- to know the negotiator's way out of this. I mean, they're only young; they're eight and five. But I cannot get them to understand the power of consequence. They will happily not get dressed for school and then be annoyed that we're ten minutes late dropping them off into the classroom. They will happily not go to bed, then be grumpy in the morning when they haven't had enough sleep. How do I get? a five and an eight-year-old to understand consequences. It's all, you know, with your kids, it's all about helping them think. And that's really what you're asking me. You know, how do I get them to think into the future a little bit more? So the starting point to that is often when we're late to school, how are you going to feel? Because that's a how question is designed to get people to think. How is principally focused on implementation? What is principally focused on uncovering problems? Those each words have a primary design. So if you drag your feet, how did it feel last time when you walked in late? How embarrassing was that? That's a time travel question. You're trying to gently put them in a moment in time. Humans hate to be embarrassed. Get them thinking. You know, it's called in-depth thinking, slow thinking, Danny Kahneman would say. But that's in-depth thinking. And your job as a parent is to really get your kids' thinking ability as high as it could possibly be and kick them out of the nest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want to talk to you about listening and the, the importance of listening, because I think we all think that to have a good negotiation, you have to be talking. But right. you, um, you talk in the book about active listening. What is that? Yeah, you know what, and that that word has become enough of a cliche that we, you know, we're cautious of the term because a lot of active listening is taught poorly, and we really want to get proactive, if you will, because you're listening for specific things. Humans are naturally negative. The majority of our thinking is negative because that's how we're wired. It's survival thinking is negative. When we were really being chased by saber-toothed tigers and or bears were in caves. If the optimistic caveman said, yeah, I know last time Chris went in a dark cave, he never came out, but I'm optimistic. I'm going to go in this one. You know, those guys didn't survive. They got eaten. So we've inherited uh, survival thinking is negative. So if you know that, then you'll start out intentionally looking to deactivate the negative thinking, which is ridiculously simple, calling it out. The elephant in the room. You don't get rid of the elephant in the room by ignoring it or denying it's there. You diminish its impact by saying there's an elephant in the room. So I can make some pretty good predictions on what your negative thinking about me is going to be. If we're back in this deal where we're setting up a book tour, when we get ready to get into price, I'm going to say, look, I'm probably going to sound greedy. As opposed to your gut instinct would be, look, I don't want to seem like I'm greedy. The denial. To get people really good at this, what we coach them on, in the back of your mind, what would you deny? I don't want you to think I'm greedy. I don't want you to think I'm hard to get along with. I don't want you to think I'm a diva. 
you know, whatever it might be. Everybody's got a gun instinct for stuff they they know they should probably deny before the negotiation starts. Instead of denying it, you just straight out call it out. Look, I'm probably going to seem like a diva. I'm probably going to seem like I can't make a decision. If you were going to do business with me, I'd say like, look, I'm probably going to seem like I'm a weak leader, but I don't do anything without my team's full involvement. I can't implement without my team. So for us to even proceed, I got to bring my whole team on board. We got to bring them all up to speed. Because somebody wants to get a quick decision out of me, might go like, well, aren't you the decision maker? Aren't you in charge? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preempt that. I'm going to look, I got a team. I'm, pro- I'm probably going to look like I'm not in charge. I'm probably going to look like I'm not the decision maker. Which makes you seem vulnerable, which is no bad thing. You know, there's a lot to that. Allowing yourself to appear vulnerable without being afraid of it. And I think that's what a lot of people, like for me, vulnerability is like, oh, I'm so, oh, I'm sad. But that, you know, that's my misconstruing what that dynamic really is. I need to be honest about my shortcomings so you're not blindsided by them. And and I'm not scared to be honest. And that's a difficult bridge for people to cross until they see how effective it is. Until they see how how it establishes relationships. But is it not a line of argument, Chris, that doing that, like, you might sow a seed of doubt in that mind that might not have been there by calling it out? Everybody's afraid of that. A thousand percent. That is the biggest thing. And not only is that not true, but the opposite is so true that we actually use it as an inoculating technique. Because um, let's say you got no reason to have a problem with me. Um, But I'm going to say, look, you're not going to like what I'm getting ready to say. It's going to sound really harsh. Because, and and you're not going to back up and say, Hold it, hold it, hold it. I already think you're a jerk. Now I think you're a bigger jerk, so don't even let another thing come out of your mind. You're going to kind of brace yourself. And and in the slightest instance, what you will imagine, because we're, like I said before, we're wired to be negative. You will imagine something 10 times worse than what I have to say. And what I have to say will actually be a relief. Like when, when, if we're doing a book tour deal uh, and we start talking about money and percentages, and you're going to like, you know, what's, What's your compensation? What do you guys charge? My answer is going to be an insanely high amount of money, more than you've ever paid. It's going to stop your heart when you find out how much it costs me. And then I'm going to shut up. No one has ever walked away from us when we've said that, ever. Because people are remarkably resilient when you inoculate them. Right. Now, I have, I'm not saying we've made every deal. But I don't want you to be shocked over the price and have me fail to make a deal that I should have made. So when I drop a number on you, I'm going to be open to a better deal, but I don't want you to be so blown away by the number that your thinking shuts down and you just, and you, you know, you, you just give up at that point in time. So we got to continue to explore. It's interesting for me to hear that because one thing that I am awful at is I hate the thought of having a conversation that makes someone feel bad. So I do the total opposite to what you've just said. I will say to them, um, can I have a quick chat? It's nothing to worry about. And it's, you know, I don't think you're going to have a problem with this. And I think it's going to be fun. And I think we can work it out together. But I just wanted to go through something. Why do I, and I worry and worry and worry. And I, I honestly think, I'm now 42, Chris. I think that I've spent my life worrying about those conversations. I've never had one as bad as the role play in my head before that conversation. I wish I could get out of this mindset of worrying about how they're going to feel. Yeah. And well, you've probably never been shown a better way. That's one of the problems. You don't know a better way out of this. And all, all yeah. the modeling that we have, 
particularly in movies and television, the modeling is just so bad. So, I mean, and unless you'd stumbled across somebody handling it properly, you got no way of knowing. And what's going through your head is your natural negative wiring. And as you pointed out, it's, it's always worse than what you imagine is always worse. You know, there's, there's occasionally we're seeing more guidance and coaching in other areas where people are, are trying to get us to believe that what we imagine is always going to be worse than how it's actually going to happen. And somehow that just doesn't get transferred into negotiations. And so, you know, you, you've, ne- you've never seen another way to do it. And, and you're also rehearsing high stakes negotiations. Like when, when we're teaching you to be a black swan, when, you, when you're learning a black swan method, we'll coach you to practice up on small stakes negotiations so that you're willing to try something completely new in a conversation that doesn't matter. And then when it changes the outcome, you're like, you'll be like, wow. All right, now let me try it in something important. Do it in a restaurant. I did this. Uh, I just started dating a girl on our first date. We, uh, we're in a steakhouse, and they walk us right past the table I want to sit in and walk us to the back room in a table that is, like, farthest away, you know, because they're doing the social distancing stuff. And I've never been in this restaurant before. And, you know, I don't know they're giving me the best seat in the house, but I want the best seat in the house. And I'm going to get it. <laughs> so a young lady walks us back to the, the back table and I go, I am going to be the worst customer that has ever walked into this restaurant. Now, you know, who, you know what is going through her mind? Because she's had some she's had some problem child in the restaurant. They've seen some horrible things. They've seen people that, you know, maybe want to maybe they want to eat in their underwear. You know, maybe they want to eat with their fingers, you know, something horrible. They want to put their face literally in their plate and eat straight up. You know, who knows what I want? But she's going to imagine all this stuff. And in that slightest moment, you know, her survival wiring is going to kick into place. And I, I wait about three breaths. And then I say, we walked right by a table in the other room that I'd really love to sit at. Can we please go sit in this table? And she is so relieved that without even checking with the people up front, she walks us right over there and we sit down at the best seat in the house. Yes. That's the easiest negotiation. Yeah, and it's fascinating to hear, but I'm also intrigued by, in this age of like mental health and well-being, I'm conscious that you started your career working on suicide hotlines where you were dealing with people that really were troubled, where maybe the thought processes that they were experiencing really were the worst-case scenarios happening for them. So how can you help those of us listening to this to understand how do we help people maybe with mental health challenges that they're going through using some of your techniques. Stop giving advice and just let people just be a sounding board. Don't give advice at all. Stop. Here's a big advantage to sounding board. All of us, the thoughts in our head, they make sense when they're in our head. And as soon as we start talking them out loud, just that mere act of saying stuff out loud, no matter how troubled you are, some of it is going to clear up. And the mere fact that the only thing you did was say it out loud, what the person who was your sounding board facilitated for you was also a feeling in you that you could cope. Because you sort of missed the fact that the sounding board was not judgmental, didn't give any advice, didn't tell you you were wrong. All they did was help you talk stuff out loud. And the suicide hotline I was on is actually a crisis intervention hotline. Which is, you know, there's, you know, you might be in crisis, but not be suicidal. And we want to help those people too. 
And I, and I can remember that I took one call where a young lady calls and she says, look, you know, my friend here is just, he's just in really tough shape and I can't get him to call you. But he says, if I hand him the phone, that he'll talk to you. So I'm like, yeah, all right, put him on the phone. And he sounded completely calm in the moment. But I knew from the context, something was troubling him and he was trying to cope with it himself. And I said, sounds like you're going through a tough time. And 20 minutes later, he said, wow, I had no idea all that was inside me. I'm, I'm good now. And all I was was a sounding board for 20 minutes. And if you have to be a sounding board for more than 20 minutes, you're not being a sounding board. You're giving advice and you need to stop. Because if you're a good sounding board, they can, they, can, they can level themselves out in 20 minutes or less if you're a good sounding board. And is that an important mindset to start with, Chris? Because I think if you go into a conversation like that, and you've already made an assumption about what their problem is and how you can help. You're so fixed on, I can't wait to tell them what my solution is. You actually miss what they're telling you. A thousand percent. So interesting. So what should we do in that situation then? We, we should just accept that our assumption for how we can help is no use and we just let it go. Or should we still, if we hear something that we think we can help with, we should still dive in. Yeah. You know, um, at some point in time, if you absolutely have to offer a thought, yeah. you know, I always get permission first. And, you know, let's go back to this no thing. Because people feel safe and protected when they say no. They feel like they don't have to accept. And I will say something like, are you, you against me offering you a couple thoughts? And then with each thought that I offer, I got to be in full-on read mode. Because if they start to shut down and their body language and their facial expression are going to tell me in 10 seconds or less, then I need to shut up. Because if they're shutting down and I keep talking, then this is back down in the same downward spiral where they feel that talking to people was a waste of their time. And what's the technique there? Because I've been in those things where I start offering something and I see that they go, "Mm, but I'm not sure how to stop offering the advice what would you you don't, can't just shut up and say actually no that's rubbish do you know what i mean yeah well you could say um look it sounds like i'm off track right because they're giving you body language that you're off track yeah yeah yeah. or you could even say it feels like i'm off track a lot of people it kind of depends upon how you're wired whether you want to go with it sounds like it looks like it feels like i mean i, I get one one of the person one guy we've coached up in a black swan method he likes it feels like and he uses it with his family and he uses it in business deals. He was telling us about a, he was trying to get an appointment with a CEO and the secretary was, was blocking, was, was, uh, was blowing him off. And he literally said, and, and how you say this is really important too. He's great with the inquisitive curiosity voice. Cause you could say, it feels like you're blowing me off. That's an accusation. That tone of voice is really bad. Instead, he said, it feels like you blow me off. Same words, yep. completely different impact. And he got the meeting. So you coach people on this, Chris. So what are the sloppy or the worst habits that people get into that often inhibit them getting the results they want? Yeah, well, uh, there's three default types. The world is pretty much made up of three types. Um, And and I got no shortage of data to back that up. You're either assertive, you're either data-oriented, where you want lots of information, or or you're relationship-oriented, where you just care about the interaction being pleasant. So if you're assertive, your big problem is you're going first, you, you know, you're hitting them hard, you're high anchoring, you're demanding, you're pounding, 
you're driving deals away from the table. You're not finding out the better deal that could have been there. In point of fact, negotiation is a positive sum game and you're treating it like a zero sum game, which limits how much you can make. All right. So if you're relationship oriented, you just want to have a great time, but you know, you know, you never let them know what you need and you get pushed around a lot because you're trying to make them happy. You actually need elements of the assertive person in you. I mean, let's say they want you to be happy and many people do. You're making them guess. If you never told them what you really needed out of the deal, you're never going to be happy, but you're scared to tell them. So you need an element of assertion in you. There's each type has bad habits and each type has good things. Now, if, if you're, if you're data oriented, if you just want to make sure that how you think this should go is, is already, you've already got in your head. The issue is you come off as so cold. They're not going to really give you any good information. They're going to be leery of you. They're not going to enjoy the interaction. So they'll either be leery of you or you're so reluctant to speak. Then if you're going to assertive on the other side, they just pound the heck out of you. Bang, 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 bang. And they're, and they're horrible for you to deal with. So that, you know, you, you just don't, as soon as you smell an assertive a mile away and you won't even come to the table with them. So interesting. So how do we flex those roles? Because it sounds like it's that that we need to be different characters at different times. So what advice would you give us in terms of being able to adopt those the best characteristics of those three types? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And and it's not really that you need to be different, it's what skills you need to add to your existing who you are now. And two out of three people need to be just more comfortable smiling. Because there's there's some neurological wiring behind that. You're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. So you want to do what you can to put yourself in a positive frame of mind. Smiling is a tiny little way that helps. There's actually hardwired connections between the muscles in your face and the neurons in your brain. The smile will also tend to help them think simultaneously. What happens is, you know, the person who's relationship-oriented The analyst, the person who loves data, notices that the people who smile get a lot more information, so they learn to smile because they're very analytical. Like My my daughter-in-law is the director of marketing in my company, my son's wife. She is an analyst, and you know we also refer to analysts as assassins. I mean, she is an assassin. Everybody that knows her, because she's smiling and bubbly, and she laughs and laughs and laughs, and she has the best time talking to you. Everybody that knows her thinks she's she's an accommodator, relationship-oriented person. She's just so darn smart, she learned that she gets a lot more information out of the situation and the more pleasant she is. She is sucking every bit of information that you have, because she knows that no matter how good her information is, you know something she wants to know. And the more she laughs and smiles with you, the more likely you are to give it all up. <laughs> That's one of the main habits. What a brilliant lesson and a, a brilliant way to end. What I have to say, I, like, I feel slightly anxious and stressed out about this conversation, Chris, because I've had a 25-year broadcasting career from children's television to live sport and huge events. And I've realised how little I know about communicating. <laughs> I'm not sure how I've done it. Can I jump in though, Jake? Because we didn't answer that question of, tell us about Oprah, Chris, if you don't mind. Last impression is a lasting impression. 
The entertainment industry is infamous for in in a limo, out in a taxi. With Oprah, you're in in a limo, out in a limo. Her overriding theme that they either express throughout her company is no matter what happens, from beginning to end, everybody we deal with has to feel respected and well-treated. And no matter what the argument is, the last thing that Oprah has said in those instances that I told you about, she's always finished by saying, no matter what you decide, you have to understand that I will always love you and I will always support you. Love it. Chris, we've reached the end of our interview where we dive into some quick fire questions. We start with this one. Three non-negotiable, you know a fair bit about negotiable, non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you have to buy into. We, we say um, make a mis- the only sin is not learning. Yeah, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, we actually, we, we push the envelope really hard on all levels, which means we're going to make mistakes because we're constantly breaking new ground. We're constantly trying new stuff. The only sin is to not learn. If, if the, so the first thing is if you're unwilling to learn and then if you're lazy. Um, and then the third thing is if you're dishonest. You're not, you're not going to last with us. What advice would you give to a teenage Chris just starting out on your journey? Be nice. That doesn't mean you got to be weak. If if I was starting over again, I'd have just been a little bit more pleasant in my demeanor. I've always been, I've always been pretty blunt. My natural, my natural demeanor is to be blunt. I wouldn't change anything about any of the things that I believed in, other than I would just been a little nicer about it. You've mentioned quite a few books during this conversation. Um, I would love just one book recommendation, apart from your own, of course, that you would offer up to our audience that you found really helpful over the years. Wow, it's hard to hold it to one. Um, probably Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler. Uh, the prequel to that is The Rise of Superman. And if you read Stealing Fire, you're going to want to rise, read The Rise of Superman. But it's very much about human performance and just the really cool stuff that the people that are taking the human race to the next level globally, how they think and how they act and where they get the information from. It's about harnessing flow. Is that right, Chris? And looking at how you can. Yep, exactly. Excellent. Chris, how important is legacy to you? I don't know that I think about it per se. I think we've, you know, we, we built, uh, probably ended up building a pretty good legacy. You know, I, I want to see people continue to do well. And that the world's literally a better place. I mean, no, no kidding around. Whether or not it's ascribed to me, yeah, I, I don't know that I care about that. Um, but I definitely want to see the world be a better place. And the final question, what would be your one golden rule for living a high-performance life? Be optimistic. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, life happens for you, not to you. And, you know, that little mindset shift makes the world a better place. What an amazing number of lessons. Um, if you're listening to this conversation and you want more, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss is available now. Chris, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing. I think what's what's so good about this is that, you know, you're not. it's not another kind of book that you've written because you've learned a few things along the way and whatever and you feel like you've got something to tell people. We're talking here about lessons that you've learned 20 years in the FBI negotiating with international terrorists and and criminals and years in the SWAT team you know this is genuine life lessons that you're sharing with people and it's an absolute pleasure to to have you on the podcast I've I've picked up loads in that 
Yeah, likewise, Chris. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Listen, I, I don't want to uh, make this a bit self-indulgent, but when I started the role play, I literally felt like I was in a Hollywood movie for the first time in my life. <laughs> but in all seriousness, like, I know that he's negotiated with terrorists and, you know, kidnappers and bank robbers and stuff. But the lessons he's learned from those conversations are so valuable, aren't they? Oh, incredible. I just felt, I felt it was a real privilege. I felt it was just sharing. So like just dropping so many knowledge bombs on us that are applicable. Like we were asking questions about how we use it with our children, but that was as applicable as how you would use it in business or in sport or in any other domain in life. I just thought it was incredible. It sounds like. It looks like, it feels like. That is the sort of area where I have really, I've sort of, considering the job I do, I actually, I'm not actually great at at negotiating and having business conversations and, and working things out with people. You know, I love like a, I love a conversation with someone who's got a bit of an issue and I can help them with it. I hate a conversation where there's a bit of confrontation or me and the other person differ in some way and I need to pick up the phone and have that chat with them. And I think that, the big thing that I've learned from that, for, from my perspective, is that immediately disarming the other person with, look, you can say no at any time, but this is what I'm thinking, or you're going to hate this conversation. Let me, look, Damien, this is going to be the shittest moment of your week. Can I just talk to you about something? That's actually a really good technique. I hate the thought of saying it, like even now being so English, I still cringe a bit about it, but then I know that the impact actually will be useful. Yeah, and I think he uses a line in uh, in his book that he says that empathy saves us time. And I think sometimes when we can come at it with those statements that you've just mentioned of like, this feels like, this sounds like, this appears like, I think empathy then allows us to connect on that human to human level and allows us to then work together rather than, as he said, see the world as a zero sum game means that, we end up, it's that old saying that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Whereas he's saying, actually, let's, how do we empower each other? How do we work together? So we both walk away from this feeling better for it. I've also spent a long time from afar looking jealously at the career that Oprah Winfrey has and thinking, how, how has she got that amount of information out of that person? I think what's amazing about Oprah is that she gets people to say things that they would never normally say on a live television show in front of an audience of hundreds of people. And she does it in a really nice way. And I've never really understood it. But after the things that we discussed with Chris, I'm going to, I'm going straight on the internet, watching some Oprah interviews and picking up some tricks, you know? Yeah. I thought you, I found it fascinating. I saw that, uh, the interview recently with uh, Prince Harry and his wife, where she had them opening up. And I think when I think back to it now, there are moments of empathy where she was just written, she didn't say anything. She just let them know that she felt what they were describing at a human level. I think it was unarming or disarming that having listened to Chris that why would you not want to share more of that when you feel that you're being genuinely listened and heard? It was a great chat and it was an absolute pleasure to share it with you once again, Damien. No, thank you, Jay. The pleasure is mine. I'm really pleased to say for the second time on High Performance, we welcome a High Performance listener to the conversation, uh, Damon Pierce. Hi, Damon. Hi, Jake. How's it going? Hi, Damon. 
Hi, Damon. So, look, rather than me explaining your story, maybe you would like to just sort of share with us um, the information that you sent us and the reason why we decided to, to get you on here to speak to our listeners. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, to be honest, this has all kind of happened since the pandemic, really. So that the last last year has just been insane, to be honest, just not for my benefit, but everyone else's. But uh, I probably went through quite a bit of a traumatic period from those last 12 months. So I went through a bad breakup. I had eye surgery, actually. I had someone kind of scam me out of a load of money as well, which was not cool as well. And then I basically, I think it was like April 2021, I suffered a bit of a nervous breakdown. And it was basically my whole life just went completely downhill. It was terrible. It was just like I couldn't find a way to get out. And the one thing that's really helped me so much, so this is two months later, but your podcast has just helped me so much, like day by day, just getting myself better and wanting to try and get my life back on track, like, doing more of my music work, doing more of my football work. And there's so many lessons I've learned through that time and period of like how it's helped me as a person and even better as a person. The most amazing one that sort of helped me was Johnny Wilkinson's one, to be honest, because it's like, as I, I was working as a tour manager in music, I was always thinking like, oh, the next time I've got to kind of think forward, I've got to think to the next day, the next day. And then his kind of thing, without not having that work at all, I've sort of had to live in this like live in the moment mindset, which I've never, ever, ever done. And it's quite hard for me to get used to. And for me to kind of use that as a philosophy and like there's so many other podcasts that have kind of helped me just sort of it's I I don't know like where it's heading in my life, but I know it's building to something that it's going to help to help other people, if that makes sense. Um. But yeah, it's it's like day by day. I'm still not like 100% myself, but like I know day by day if I sort of put the work in and just take sort of full responsibility of what I'm, feel, what I'm feeling, then eventually I'll get to the point where I want to be, if that makes sense. And what advice would you give, Damon, to people who... Um who might be new to the High Performance Podcast and they're not sure how to use it. Like, I'm sort of interested, really. Do you just listen when the episodes come out? Do you go back and re-listen? Do you take notes? How how do you use it to help change your life? Uh, it's so weird, like, because I'm a massive podcast fan, but your your one literally speaks to me like no no other else has done. It's, it's, I, I, I listen to it, like, week by week. So whoever you've got on the Monday, the Wednesday, like, I... I firmly like think oh i'm going to get something from this little ones but there's always a few favorites of mine where i've gone back to listen to it a few two or three times for instance like matthew mcconaughey's one a massive a massive one for me as well and like hearing that like i've gone back to being like oh because i read his book recently and going back to his it's just like oh i've heard that like there's another bit i got that i didn't get from before and um kelly jones as well from the stereophonics i'm a massive stereophonics fan as well so that's that's a massive one for me to go back to as well and has there been any surprises in any of the ones you've listened to damon yeah like stephen bartlett was pretty interesting i've never heard of him before with hearing yours holly tucker as well michelle moan as well uh that sort of that one was like i have no sort of business expertise in my own mind but that actually made me want to think about maybe starting up an own business in fact, I just can't thank you guys enough for like what you've brought to like, not just for my life, but I'm sure you're helping so many other people's lives out there as well. Oh, and thanks. it's been um, a massive thing for me, like for my health, like wanting to like feel better in myself. And it's actually knowing that there are tools. So if like, for instance, when I had sort of my breakdown thing, I forgot how to do certain things and like the, the simplest of things, but hearing your words, 
is kind of helped me thought well i do know this kind of stuff it's like it, it's it's just all it's it's so simple when you think about it it's not like as long as i'm treating people right and i'm doing the right thing and i'm putting the work in that's that's day by day i'll get to a point where i want to be so that sounds like you're starting to quote your non-negotiables uh there damon so yeah what are they what are your three kindness integrity as well um and it kind of probably is the same like just being a general around all good person i think if you do good things then good things will happen to you really yeah i'd say them brilliant brilliant lovely sounds like uh you're perfect for the how robson carney podcast from last week where you yeah i checked that that was that was amazing that was to be honest yeah really good well well look mate thank you so much for coming on and uh and having a quick chat with us and honestly it, me- it means the world to damien and i that you know we can have these kinds of conversations and we get to genuinely see yeah. the difference that we're making so thanks for listening thanks for subscribing to the circle thanks for ordering the book thanks for just sort of absolutely investing and you know like everything else in life the more you put in the yeah, more you get out right so thank you man no problem thanks guys Hey, I love those conversations, Damien. Love them. Yeah, fantastic, aren't they? I think, again, it's a validation of why we do this stuff. It gives us a real buzz that people are hearing these conversations and being able to apply them in their own lives. I think the important thing is that we live in an era where um, this sort of stuff gets talked about quite a bit. So I think the key is not just to listen to the High Performance Podcast, but to really like to make it work for you. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, you and I, I, I have, what I do, obviously we do the interviews and then I'll have a listen back to them before we put them out. But then I'll also wait a while and then go back in. In fact, I did it with Matthew McConaughey this week. Go and just give myself an hour, listen and try really hard to make notes. And then I put those notes into a, a little um, Word document I've created on my, my computer of sort of all the notes. But it doesn't tell me who where they came from on there. It's just loads of information. I, I don't know what you do, but I think it's important that people kind of work out what they can do to, to really suck the most out of these podcasts, yeah? Yeah, definitely. I think we did an interview this week, didn't we, with uh, somebody coming soon that spoke about principles that they have within their world. And I uh, that really resonated with me, the idea of taking some of these principles and working out which you can accommodate and adopt within your own life, such as... The person we interviewed said his first principle was just don't be an arse. And that's that contains so much wisdom in so many different ways. So, uh, yeah, just however you sort of digest this stuff, it can't do any harm. Um, let's just talk very quickly about the listeners because they can really help us out, actually, at the moment. So if you're listening to this and you can spare us 30 seconds, we would be so grateful. As you know, coming our way very soon is the British Podcast Awards. And we are nominated for Best Sports Podcast, which is amazing and means a lot to us. But we are also in the listener's choice vote. So this is a public vote where fans of any podcast can vote. You only get one vote. So we are basically asking if you can vote for us, aren't we, Damien? Yeah, yeah. Vote once uh, and uh, hopefully put the X next to our name. All you have to do is go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. So it's nice and easy. That's britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Uh, there you'll get the choices. You can vote for the High Performance Podcast and you need to do it by Sunday. So get going now. But honestly, because like I, these things always matter even more, don't they, Damien, when it's the listener's choice, when people have actually taken the time to vote. I'm not saying we don't want to win Best Sports Podcast because <laughs> I'm sure there's an esteemed panel that's making that decision, but... 
I would really love to win the listener's choice. Yeah, definitely. Because again, it goes back to listening to Damon uh, there that we've just heard that it's a validation in many ways that people are listening to this and finding it useful um, because that's a big driver for us. It's not just about entertainment. It's about people feeling they can use it in their own lives. So if anyone feels that that's the case, it, uh, their vote would be incredibly welcome. Wouldn't it? Um, and of course, you can order the High Performance book in the link to this podcast. You can do it as well at thehighperformancepodcast.com. And that is also where you can sign up for our members club, which is totally free to be a member of. It's called the High Performance Circle. We've just dropped um, a brilliant Hamish to Bretton Gordon conversation about mindset in conflict zones. Ben Saunders uh, talks to us about self-belief being like a muscle. You will hear the most amazing podcast from Rick Lewis. And Kath Bishop, former athlete, uh, delivers a, a brilliant keynote speech about winning. So if you want to sign up for the High Performance Circle, go to thehighperformancepodcast.com and then um, click the link for the circle. You'll get an invite and you're in. Uh, Damien, thanks ever so much, mate. Thanks, Jake. Loved it. As always, uh, don't forget, we've got uh, an amazing episode as well coming your way on Wednesday. Get ready for that one from our Euro 2020 special. But for now, from myself, from Damien Hughes, from Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio, from Will and Hannah and all the team that work on the High Performance Podcast. Thank you so much. Have a brilliant week and we'll see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.